In 2019, protests broke out in Hong Kong over an extradition bill that would allow alleged criminals to be sent to trial in mainland China. Though the law was eventually shelved, within months the protest evolved into a massive democracy movement in China's last enclave of freedom. This was not the first time that people had taken to the streets, but it could very well be the last. Spread across multiple decades, Hong Kong's political turmoil has left the city divided in two. The Blue Ribbons, who are supportive of the Beijing government, and the Yellow Ribbons, who want democracy. Hong Kong's conflict is often told as a very black and white story, but things are not as simple as they seem. Welcome to the Grey Zone. In this limited series, we bring you previously unheard perspectives of Hong Kong's political conflict. With every episode, we'll uncover details of how each piece shapes the city. I'm your host, Taylor Rabana, and you're listening to The Curiously Candid Show. We've been quick to categorize the 2019 protests as a fight between the establishment and the protesters, a leaderless movement of unforeseen magnitude that found power in numbers. But even within the so-called yellow camp, there are factions, factions of protesters willing to use varying levels of radical methods. And while it remains true that the movement was largely leaderless, there was so much going on under the surface with highly complex networks of protesters. Today, we talked to a radical protester who refers to himself as B. Currently exiled in Australia, he spoke to us on the condition of anonymity. Before 2019, I was working in art-related work. Uh, I'm not a student, but I have a full-time job. And a peaceful protester. Hi, hello. <laughs> Good to see you. Richard Tsui is a Hong Kong politician and the former vice chairman of the Democratic Party. Currently, he's the convener of the Hong Kong Alliance Group, which organizes the annual Tiananmen Square Vigil. But he's also been active in the Civil Human Rights Front, the group behind the annual handover day protests on July 1st. It marks the handover of the territory from the UK to China in 1997. And for two decades, it's been an annual day of protest. Thousands of Hong Kongers took part in these pro-democracy rallies, a form of freedom of expression not allowed anywhere else in China. While B and Richard both fought for democracy, the way in which they did so was in stark contrast. But that was not always the case. While in pro-democratic protests were rarely seen during the 2014 umbrella movement. So what has changed since? In the past, of course, uh, for many years, uh, Hong Kong people used the demonstration, uh, uh, the uh, march or uh, procession with one of the way because in some situation, quite a large crowd, like the July 1st March 2003, uh, that year, more than half a million Hong Kong people voiced out against the uh, Article 20 legislation. And now in the year 2019, more than a million people uh, you know, oppose uh, extradition law amendment. This, of course, would create a large crowd. Of course, would create a big pressure. Yeah, you ask me how those things go into a siege or vandalism, more hardcore protest. I would say this is mainly caused by the government. They didn't react, and the people realized that oh, we can't bear enough. We have to do more than peaceful protest. Yep. This sentiment kept growing in the lead up to the 2016 fishbowl protests. In Mongkok, on February 8, 2016, violent clashes broke out between the police and the protesters, who opposed the government's crackdown on unlicensed street hawkers during the Lunar New Year holidays. But on the very first day of the Year of the Monkey, the celebrations were over. 
Hong Kong police suddenly moved in to clear illegal street stalls, attracting hundreds of protesters. The demonstrations turned violent, and then an officer fired two warning shots in the air and pointed his pistol at the crowd. A new turning point in the escalating battle between Hong Kong's government and pro-democracy activists. While the government classified this as a riot, many media outlets gave it the term fishbowl revolution instead, in reference to the popular street food. There was an incident in 2016, a uh, fishbowl revolution, but in that time I'm not actively to receive news on politics or protests, because so those five years I was totally not engaged with those things. So what changed? I think I saw a bunch of people uh, believing their identity on Hong Kongers to stand up, to get on the street, and that picture stuns me. I felt I have to be in this history of Hong Kong. When's your first protest? The really first one, the first of July, yeah. On July 1st, 2019, as Hong Kong marked the 22nd anniversary of its 1997 handover to China, Daniel, the pro-democracy protest march organized by the Civil Human Rights Front claimed a record turnout of over 500,000 people. That night, however, a group of activists splintered off from the peaceful march and headed towards the Legislative Council building. Thousands of others remained locked in an intense standoff with police. Throughout the afternoon and evening, protesters repeatedly charged towards LegCo using metal trolleys, poles, barricades, and pieces of scaffolding as they tried to force their way into the building. Basically, just tried to break their front door, and the door is broke, so we can enter it. So did you go inside? Yes, of course. The history on occupying and, and building is uh, very significant to the social movement. We need people in there to make that happen, and so I will be those people, yeah. And what, do you, what did you do inside? I want to say true, but it's not appropriate. <laughs> so you're saying that you basically just hung out inside of Lechko, that you finally found a place to put your feet up after a long day of protesting in the heat. Have a good view that you, you won't have a lifetime experience. Did you do anything that can be labeled vandalism? Oh, at that time, I'm, it had already been damaged after I entered the Lechko. And was anything that happened in Lechko planned? Uh, you know there are a common area, public space, in the front of the Lechko? Yeah. There are around two to 300 people there, and most of them uh, fought to enter the Lechko. We did not fought on storming to the Lechko at night. We only fought to enter the Lechko. Planned or spontaneous or both? What amazed many at the time was how a supposedly leaderless movement was so organized and well-coordinated. Protesters across the yellow spectrum worked together spontaneously, keeping them fast, adaptable, and really hard to stop. No big organizer, no big leader, no single person to blame. This idea is known as It's a kind of a no big organizer. That is something many people voiced out in the 2019 movement. But because of the social media, it's getting easier to have a suddenly big movement, but it also will collapse very fast. But organization would be something I think we can more sustain. You can see if you do not have the kind of focal point, then the movement would get moved away that nobody can control and then 
some people would dislike the situation 2019. Some people moved away violent way. When the police start to lose their stance on human rights and justice, and then the will to protect the people, the protesters have to evolve in the meantime to make sure themselves safe to protest. Because starting from each rally or event, it's getting more violent and more dangerous and more life and death life and death situation. Like we can see in Chunhua, the police shot the. Sort of one teenager protester. When did you start vandalizing stores? All vandalism、um, started from September. I did first time disclaimer. I only vandalized pro Beijing companies. What is the point of vandalizing pro Beijing shops, or commonly known as、um, red or, or blue shops? This is the only way that physical violence can encounter. The physical violence from the police and the systematic violence from the government. And one day, the red or blue side, and those are sleeping. The people will get more damage from the government than a little vandalism. Acts of vandalism escalated in November when several Hong Kong universities were seized. At the Chinese University of Hong Kong, the standoff between protesters fighting with Molotov cocktails and bows and arrows, and the police with their heavy-duty riot gear, lasted several days. What were you doing in CUHK? I was only passing on the method on how to make those dangerous stuff to the for the front line. And how did you know how to make Molotov cocktails? Uh, Google. <laughs> and then you pass that knowledge on to others, right? Yes. And usually we will have some experiments. And due to Hong Kong's ingredients, it's hard to find, and we have to improvise. Did you feel that there were any moments at that time when you thought that the violence just went too far? I do not condemn any kind of method. It's because we have to respect others on the same agenda and purpose on against the China government, and that requires a step back on. Thinking too much on humanity because you are at the life and death situation. You will be dead on walking on the street by just saying you like Hong Kong. And in that situation, I think humanity or human rights or moral high ground cannot save you. So I will not condemn any kind of the stuff people are going to do. So I don't know if you recall this, but back in 2019 November, there was this incident where an old man was set on fire by the protesters. Do you have any Do you have any comments or thoughts on that incident? To view as a single act that is not acceptable by any means, but in that situation, we do not know who they were experiencing, either the old man or the protesters. We do not know the whole story. If you have to reveal that act, is definitely not right. But that's how. The people took their responsibility on this social movement and act on themselves in their own method. And I can only say this unfortunate to see. But this is not something that everybody agrees with. I I do not agree with those kind of、uh, things, and I also think that is a one way <laughs> of moving the movement. But but I think as an analysis at that time, those violence also I would say have some kind of、uh, support. At least because of the vast majority of Hong people have a great mistrust with the SAL government, especially the chief executive, Mr. Gary Lam, and also, of course, blame the police for some sort of unlawful treatment to to Hong Kong people, something like that, the protesters. So that's why 
actually quite significant of uh, I think people actually have sympathetic to those uh, violent behavior. Do not entirely agree. Everybody has their own idea about how to protest. Some remained peaceful until the very end, while others took more radical means. I remember when I was there covering SUHK that night, it was kind of incredible. It was like organized anarchy, you know? There were people setting up medical stations, organizing food, making a lot of cocktails, laying out beds. There were a lot of different people doing very different things, but they were working together really, really efficiently. So how did you get involved? Why did you get involved in teaching frontliners how to make Molotov cocktails? Was that task assigned to you? Did you voluntarily take it up? Uh, when I arrived, my friends are already in the front line. So I just took a step back on the back up. And I personally, I want to work with my brain, but not with my physic uh, to encounter the police. Would you say that the whole thing was entirely organic? Uh, I would say it's so organic. Organic is not well planned, but still very organic. People are acting on their own. So there was some level of organization going on. For sure, they have some organization to manage the backup chain to the front line. But most of them are self-doing. There's only a few people to, to manage those stuff. Because uh, eventually, you still have to have a leader to manage this kind of the chain of supply. But I thought the protests were supposed to be quote-unquote leaderless. We are not leaderless protests, but defined to very, very small group to work together. And each group definitely have a leader to decide what to do or what to do not. Okay, well, who are these so-called leaders then? Most of them uh, already have experience in 2014 or maybe further back more than the time like 2008. Those very old events, they were already participated in. And this coalition passed by, and some people know them, some people might not know, and some people are new to that. And these people getting together and just how the blockchain, how the network create. Some specific people will communicate with the specific people on the other group, and we will have some agreement on something and just do it. And that's prevent uh, from the information leaking. And it's a kind of a security to our identity. The 2019 protests were always called leaderless, and to an extent, they were. There was really no single voice representing the entire movement. Everybody had their own understanding of how to protest. Some were radical, and some weren't. But slowly, as B mentioned, small leaders emerged and deployed their own tactics. But so did the police. Some of them might extract some information from other cases. They have their intelligence war to us and we are scrambling. So how do you know who to trust then? It's a game on luck. And yes, undercover is a problem, but in that time you just have to be careful. Have you tried catching any moles within your team? We do not assume who will be, because this is kind of disrespect to some protesters that are really similar body shape to the police, and it's hard to find undercover police. Fear of undercover cops sowed distrust amongst the yellow camp, and some embarked on a mission to quote-unquote catch the mole. I read a little bit about what happened to your team, and if I remember correctly, then one of you was mistaken for an undercover police officer. Is that correct? And then 
they were kind of chased down by other protesters trying to bust them. This was my teammate, and she was unfortunate to experience the ghostbuster, the no ghostbuster. Yes. <laughs> it's like some people are new to protest, and they will have a wrong presumption on what frontline protester will be like, um, physically or age or gender or social status, and and we had ideas on those people saying my teammates is a more might not or might be a real undercover police to incite the, the skeptical ideas to the, to the cloud. And eventually she had to leave because the identity security is at risk. And because of that, your entire team left Hong Kong? Uh, most of them, yeah. And that was because of this incident where you thought that your teammates' identity was in danger? Yes. Some are still safe, but most of them are already uh, freed. It's important to note just how many people are leaving Hong Kong these days for all kinds of different reasons. The government officials continue to dismiss any long-term impacts of the current exodus. They say that Hong Kong has not lost any freedoms and people are free to come and go as they wish. For some of these valiants, however, entering may never be an option again, as charges of rioting and unauthorized assembly await them back home, carrying a jail sentence of up to 10 years. On July 27th, Tong Ying Kit became the first person charged under the national security law. He was handed a nine-year sentence for terrorism and secession. His crime? He drove a motorcycle with a popular protest slogan into a flag of policemen. Here in Hong Kong, the verdict is now in this landmark case, the first trial under the national security law. We have learned that 24-year-old Tong Ying Kit has been convicted. He has been found guilty of incitement to secession, which is punishable with up to 10 years in prison. He's also been found guilty of terrorism, a very serious offense under the national security law. It's punishable with up to life in prison. Earlier, the defendant had pleaded not guilty to those charges. It was on July the 1st, 2020, just hours after the national security law was imposed in Hong Kong, when Tong was arrested. He was so it wouldn't be far-fetched to assume that if any of these radical protesters were to return to the city one day, they might not spend their days walking around freely. Since you fled Hong Kong and found exile in Australia, how do you still participate in the movement? Is there any way to still be a part of it or, or any way to continue fighting for you? I will find more people, more overseas Hong Kongers to talk to them and let them know what we are thinking and the locals and talk to them and let them know why Hong Kongers have different side than uh, peaceful. Unlike B, Richard is still in Hong Kong and believes that mobilizing support from abroad has little to no effect. You know, moving to the, um, uh, in the Western countries, you are, of course, you are minority there and you voice out. Even you, like, you make a demonstration uh, with maybe 10,000 people in London. Normally, no effect. To Hong Kong, you just make an incident, and then probably maybe BBC will report or whatever. We should not uh, put the perspective on what they did and escaped. It's a very forced perspective. The main reason seeking asylum is we protest and we are in danger. And the other country accepts, and they have a humanitarian program to give us safe haven. And that's why those countries are respected, and that's why they are called a democratic freedom world. 
those who didn't get lucky like B did ended up getting arrested. I think, of course, uh, it's very sad. First, uh, I think that this several hundred or uh, more than one thousand people now being persecuted for arrest, more than ten thousand. But uh, quite a lot, the new generation, young people, uh, they some of them need to face prison life and with a criminal record. And it seems even after the sentence period, they will also face difficulty. To reintegrate to the society. So those people who were arrested, would you call them criminals for the things they did, like setting a pro-Beijing man on fire, or or these teens who were arrested for a suspected bomb plot not so long ago? Would you say that these people are criminals? It is a very great area on saying criminal or freedom fighter, and the history will answer us. I, I would only say. Those unfortunate events caused by the government, and it will happen somehow in a social movement. While Richard's organization, the Hong Kong Alliance, is still a legal organization, the capacity and the extent with which they and others can operate is currently under question. I think some organizations already being outlawed or cannot function, uh, like uh, even the Civil uh, Human Rights Fund. Or organized the um, uh, July First March for many years, and indeed I also was the one of the funder of the Civil Human Rights Fund. But I think that uh, organization already, I think, still exists, but cannot function. Uh, uh, many of the members' organization already left, um, and also of course nowadays this uh, year they even have the no ability to apply for the July First March. The Hong Kong Alliance is a bit better. We still functioning, but we also experienced first uh, for the this year and also last year. We cannot properly organize the June Fourth candlelight vigil as before. We of course uh, know that properly quite likely have some political reason behind. So of course uh, it, it would be we cannot be optimistic. That uh, uh, in the future we can go back to the same situation, and I think even worse would be the the amendment of the lateral security law. We don't know, like the Hong Kong Alliance, we may also as an organisation would face the challenges by the lateral security law, uh, like the situation of Apple Daily. What started as a leaderless, peaceful movement developed cracks over time. It became fragmented into small groups, each with their own understanding of how to protest. But what tied every single protester together was the feeling of helplessness. In light of these difficulties, will you still stay in Hong Kong? I was born in Hong Kong, so I, I will continue to、uh, stay here and to see how we can do. But of course, I think nowadays, including me, we need to be more careful to、uh, continue our, our work. Thanks for tuning into this episode. For our fifth and very last episode, we talked to Senior Counsel Ronnie Tong, who's one of the biggest and well-known politicians in Hong Kong. He currently advises the city's chief executive Carrie Lam as a member of the Executive Council. Stay tuned, and see you soon.